Once again, welcome to Calvary. It's good to see you this morning. We're glad that you've joined us. And uh, we've already enjoyed just talking about the fact that Christ is enough. And uh, I hope that if you haven't experienced that or maybe you're thinking about that, that before this is over, you will know that as a fact because that is a a wonderful truth. Uh, We've been walking through a uh, journey here at Calvary since last September. We've called it, uh, it's a journey from the beginning of the end of Scripture that's been using this resource called the story. And this morning we are uh, in the second week into the New Testament. So if you, if you have your Bibles, if you want to uh, find it or your electronic devices, we're going to be in the book of Matthew, chapter number 9. Uh, the story is going to be um, compared to the story in here on page 331, although we're using the passage from Matthew. But we're going to be looking, continuing walking through this, this particular journey of, of the Scriptures. Uh, let me ask you this. Did you know that the guy that, uh, that wrote the, the first book of the New Testament, which would also be, then be the first gospel, uh, which is the record of Jesus' life of, of the four gospels, that guy that wrote that first book was one of the most despised, notorious people in, in, in the history at that time. In fact, the most respectable people would, would not have had anything to do with this guy. He would, he would have been one that would have been uh, completely ostracized, out, outcast. He, he would have, Matthew, the guy who wrote this first book of the New Testament, uh, was called a tax collector, or depending on your version, may say publican. I didn't say Republican, I said publican, okay? <laughs> Make sure you get the difference, all right? <clears throat> he was a tax collector or a, a publican by his occupation. Um, it, by definition, a, a publican, a tax collector was what you think. We have an, an ancient IRS agent, just to remind you, that's coming up. You know, you're handing in all these forms and all this kind of stuff and telling your... Well, he was an, a, an ancient IRS agent with a little extra hatred involved. Here's, how, here's what uh, the, the, the problem or the issue with a guy like Matthew was that he was a Jewish man who would, would collect money from his Jewish uh, relatives, his brothers and sisters, other Jews, but he was doing it on behalf of the Gentile Roman government. The way that he got his living, the way that, and it was a it was pretty lucrative business, but the way that he got his living was not only would he collect the money that the Romans required, but then on top of that, he would charge an extra percentage, which would be his cut. All right? And so here's, here's his job is not only to get money for the Romans, but then to also make himself as rich as possible in the process. At the core, a tax collector would be considered a traitor to his people. I mean, the Romans, he, he was getting money for them. He was just a pawn to them. He was no, no respect for there. But he was doubly hated by, by his fellow Jews. One, because he was collecting money for the Romans. But two, the way he did it would often be just amassed in greed and, and even abuse with a, with a Roman soldier standing right behind him to enforce whatever he wanted to, to, to said to be done. He would be a legal extortionist. Uh, he was like the, an ancient mobster, right? We're talking Al Capone type ideas, all right? This, is, this would be the picture of what Matthew was. Of his day, he was considered the worst of sinners in religious terms. He was considered not just bad, but, but even, even beyond. He was considered into that, that category of those who you just don't talk about, right? Uh, by the rabbis of his day, Many of the rabbis would consider a tax collector unworthy to have any, any religious fellowship in the temple. And if they did happen to bring money to the temple, that money was considered to be defiled if it came from an, a tax collector. They weren't allowed to give public witness in a trial. 
They were literally moral lepers, if you would. They were the untouchables, if you would. They were considered to be some, someone that you were to not to be around, someone that it was, was that they were excluded, they were put aside. They were not just sinners, they were bad sinners, right? By, by the, the religious human perspective, lower story perspective at this time, a tax collector had no hope of ever having favor with God. Because they actually had a category for the sins of a tax collector. We're actually going to read it twice in this passage we're going to get to. That they were called, that they said oftentimes the tax collectors and sinners. They, they actually had their own category of sin. Okay? So that is the guy named Matthew who God chose to be the one to write the first book, the first record of his son's life and existence. Happens to be the longest of the four gospels. The most Jewish of the four Gospels. See, God had a perspective that, that probably we may not have had of someone had we seen a tax collector, and definitely not the people of his day would have had upon him. But God's going to show us what he did in his life and the, just the amazing transformation. So we're in Matthew chapter number 9. We're going to pick it up in verse number 9, uh, verse number nine and, and I just want you to hear this story Matthew's own story of his, of his life. Here's how it goes. As Jesus went on from there, verse 9, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I want to take and focus for today's purposes on one of the last phrases that we looked at in that verse number 13 where Jesus says this, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now this is actually, the, the phrase that Jesus used is actually a quote from the Old Testament, Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, and we're going to get to it in a little bit, but I want us just to think about what Jesus said. He's telling all the people that are under him, the, the Pharisees, the Matthew, his disciples, the others that are there in this, this dinner meeting, he's saying to them, here's something I want you to learn. Something that maybe you haven't learned yet or something that it, you haven't, it hasn't quite got to you yet, but here's something I want you to learn. When Jesus says that, we need to set up because there's something here for us to, to gather, to learn from what he's trying to say. The main thought for today, based off of what he's wanting us to learn, would be, uh, this is how I'm putting it. It's the phrase you may have heard, have mercy. Now, I don't know um, what that brings to your mind. But I'll just tell you what it did to me. As soon as I hear this, my, my kids and I, we had a favorite show growing up called Full House. Anybody ever watch it? Uncle Jesse's favorite line, have mercy, right? Have mercy, right? Okay, so maybe that's where you go. Or maybe you've heard someone say, oh, Lord, have mercy, right? right? Or have mercy on your soul, those kind of things. Well, here's what we're talking, that, that particular phrase, realistically, is a cry for help. In one sense, it may be a cry for help for someone who wants leniency when they're guilty. 
have a, a female friend of our family who recently was pulled over for excessive speed by a nice police officer. That's, that's the story that happens once in a while. The part that bugs me is she got off with a warning. <laughs> now, I don't know if she cried for mercy, but here's what bugs me. That never happens to me. I mean, not that I ever speed, okay? I would never, that has never been a part of my, <laughs> okay, I'm in church. I better not go there, okay? But... It's the idea that you deserved it, didn't get it. That, that when this idea of have mercy, it could be very simply, I know I deserve this, but please don't punish me for it. That, that's one idea of have mercy. The other side of have mercy, as we'll talk in a minute, is that it's just a cry of desperation. Someone who needs help, someone who needs assistance, and their words are, help me, or have mercy, show mercy to me. You're going to see this in a couple examples in Jesus' life. One, a, a blind man came to Jesus, and literally, as Jesus was coming by, his, he wanted help, he wanted healing, but here was his request, have mercy on me. I, I need help, I need your assistance, so please have mercy. Here's what we know is a point of fact that every one of us in this room at some point will, if we already have and probably already have and you will in the future, you will have a need at some point to cry out for mercy. You're going to need in some sense an understanding of, of help, something bigger than you. You're experiencing a need and you're, you're, you know deep down there is a cry for help. Maybe it is just something, a, a wave of guilt and you wish you could have that mercy of please don't punish me for this and this wave of regret and those, maybe it's that kind of an idea, this, this need or maybe it's just feeling the down where you're at and you just need a hand and you just need help. Here's what pro the problem is, even though we'll feel it, many of us are too proud to, to ask for it. I mean, we, we know it. But have mercy requires that we have to admit that we have a need. We have to admit that we need somebody's help. And we're very, we want to be very self-sufficient, pull ourselves up by our own bootstrap kind of people. And so the idea of asking for help is sometimes beyond us. But here's the, here's the thing. There, there is a mercy available, and that's part of what this story is about, is the mercy that Jesus showed. But I want to make sure you understand that I think the major emphasis of this story is not only that we need mercy, and that mercy can be available through Christ. But part of this story also is telling us that there is a call for us to extend mercy to others. One of the major points of this story is there is mercy available. And as followers of God, we need to be showers, if you would, of that particular mercy. Remember, Jesus is telling us, go and learn. What are you to go and learn? I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He's wanting them to learn about not only mercy that's available, but mercy that needs to come from them. So we need it, or we, or we may need to give it. So let's understand, before we dump into this, this uh, verse a little more, let's define mercy. Make sure we understand it correctly. Get a definition, scripturally and even practically speaking. If you were to look at the words of mercy in the scriptures, Old and New Testament, you combine those definitions, and even you take the, the Webster's definition of today and you put it in, some words are going to pop up repeatedly about mercy. Words like this, compassion or forbearance, 
Now, forbearance, if you're not familiar, is the idea of refraining from justice, refraining from something, holding back. Okay, so that has to do with, with mercy. Some, some people, excuse me, they define mercy as not getting what you deserve, as we talked about. That's one side of the mercy coin, is not getting what you deserve. Some other words that come up, words like pity or kindness or gentleness. So the idea of unexpected acts of kindness. All right, so let's, let's take all those words and put them into a working definition. Mercy is kindness exercised toward those in need, and it includes such things as compassion, forbearance, pity, and gentleness. That's just a working definition of what we're talking about, those in need receiving that mercy from someone. Mercy is definitely more than an attitude. It's not just feeling sorry for someone. That's not mercy. Mercy is an action word. Mercy is going to take feelings and put them into steps of of help, something that actually comes in to try to alleviate the need. One thing I found very interesting, the word mercy, especially in the Old Testament, the word mercy is found to be almost synonymous with the word love. Of the 319 times that I saw the word love was used in the Old Testament, 129 of those times, you could replace it with the word mercy, depending on your translation. So what we're saying is these two words translated mercy. Mercy very simply then would be this. Mercy is love in action. Mercy is taking that Whether it's a feeling or a move, but it's taking that and putting it into action. Now you have a great picture of what mercy truly is. It's an act of kindness for someone in need. So whether that need is forgiveness or that need is assistance, it's the idea of putting love into action. Here's something else we learn about the word mercy. Mercy not only is this definition, but mercy is a defining characteristic of God. When you see God, remember God is love, so if God is love, and you can replace pretty much the word love with mercy, God would also be defined as one who is is merciful. In fact, it could be the number one characteristic of God based on how often it's used in the scripture. The the term mercy as it relates to God is used more than than the understanding of his sovereignty or his omniscience or his omnipresence or his omnipotence or whatever omni word you want to use or even more than his anger and his justice. All those things, and they're all part of who God is, but the word that pops up the most is his his mercy. In fact, if you remember when we did the story, one of our early weeks, week number five, back in probably October, Moses was being introduced in a new way to who God was and getting a real understanding of God himself. And Exodus chapter 34, listen to God's description or his introduction to Moses of himself. He says this, the Lord, the Lord God, or Yahweh God, notice his description, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in goodness. And that word goodness is the same word as mercy. He said abounding in goodness or mercy and truth, keeping mercy, same word as goodness, as, uh, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, by no means clearing the guilty. Look at that. I mean, Jesus, the, the Bible says merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding, overflowing in goodness or mercy, having mercy to forgive and to forgive and to forgive. That's the description that Moses received from God himself of who he is. A couple of things from, you read this passage, many people have misconstrued the idea of who God is. 
They pictured God as this angry, judgmental, especially, and they use the Old Testament usually, that God is this mean God. Who's just, but if you've been with us in the story, and if you've been listening at all, mercy is just dripping all over the story of the Scriptures. Mercy is just running through everything that we see. That's the point of this theme of the story. Let's start from the very beginning. Adam and Eve, you had it perfect, guys. You had one thing not to do, and you did it in rebellion against God. You should have got kicked out and just been forgotten or maybe wiped out and start over. What does God do? He already has a plan in place to get them back. He kills an animal to cover their nakedness and then tells them that there is coming a one who's going to bring you back. From the very beginning, mercy is a part of who God is. There's so many examples. We go to the children of Israel, which happen to be a, a big part. That's part of God's story. And the children of Israel, I mean, chosen by God, all these, and they just, one time after another, they fall away from God, they turn away from God, they rebel, they just, they, they snub their noses at God, they turn their hands against God, and time after time, he, his mercy, and he gives them opportunity after opportunity, and, and, and his mercy is even why we're still talking about them in the book of Matthew, and even today, because of the mercy of God. But it wasn't just the Jews. You look, there was a guy named Jonah. If you ever heard that story, you know, the big fish story, right? Got swallowed and all those kind of God was sending him to preach for repentance to a group of people who not only were not Jews, they will be the, ultimately, they were the Assyrians. They'd ultimately be the one that take Israel into captivity, the group of Nineveh. They were the Assyrians. But God sends them to the Assyrians to preach repentance so that they could be shown mercy. I'm telling you, folks, you just walk through the Bible, and you're going to find that this God is a God, as he said, a God of mercy. But don't miss that final phrase. He says, he by no means clears the guilty. In other words, yes, God is merciful. His love and mercy just fall, but he's also not one that can put up with sin. At some point, sin must be, must be taken care of. Sin must be punished. Sin, must, there, sin is the, the problem that we all have. God can't just say, I ignore sin. He's too holy and just for that. So God is merciful, but in his mercy, understand that ultimately sin is the, is the problem, and God is going to show through this, through this story that he's bringing a worldwide solution, and that person's name is Jesus Christ. Another part of this that touches my heart is I realize even as followers of God, Every day, I still need God's mercy. Now, I don't know if any of you agree with that, but holy cow. There's just some days I think, God, why in the world me? I'm a mess, right? So maybe it's not even just the sin. Maybe it's just the stuff that I need to hand up. I need help. God, I need, have mercy, <laughs> right? Lamentations, chapter number three, happens to be a favorite verse of mine because I'll make sure you remember the context because we read it once before. Jeremiah writes this, and he's writing as he's watching Judah being carried off into captivity, and he knows they're going to be there for 70 years because of their sin and all of this, and they're getting what they deserve, but in the middle of this, listen to what he says to them. He promises them hope, and then he says, through the Lord's what? Mercies. We are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That's a great verse to start every morning with. It's God, I need a bunch of, I'm going to need a bunch of mercy today in one way or another, and I know that they're fresh, they're new, they're real because you're a faithful God. That's the mercy of God that we're talking about. So 
these important reminders, let's go back to this passage in Matthew and, and see what Jesus wants us to learn about mercy. He said, remember, go and learn, and then he tells us, no, I, want, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. What are some of the things he wants us to learn? Let me show you a few that I, I learned this week. Number one, a follower of Christ is a living testimony to God's mercy. Let's go back and look at this guy again. Beautiful picture of Jesus as he chose people. He's coming to Matthew. He's going to, he says to him, follow me and, and, and all this. And, and we don't know for sure if Jesus and Matthew had ever had, had really met before. We, we're not told. But we kind of would assume, for a couple of reasons, this was kind of Jesus' hometown or his hometown area, Capernaum. Um, Matthew was a tax collector there, so everybody knew Matthew, right? So between Jesus' reputation and Matthew's reputation, there's a good chance they had crossed paths at some time in some way. A couple chapters before, Matthew 4.19, Jesus had said something similar to four other guys, Andrew, Peter, James, and John. He said, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. So what is Jesus doing? He's accumulating guys to follow him. That wasn't an unusual. If a rabbi, a popular rabbi especially, as he's walking through the country at this time, there would be disciples that would follow him. The difference is those disciples would seek out the rabbi. In fact, some of them would actually pay to be a part of the rabbi's entourage because he was so powerful. Jesus, didn't, Jesus went after them. He pursued them. He chose the ones that he wanted, including this guy named Matthew. Now, when Luke tells the story of Matthew's coming, he, he says it this way, Luke 5, 28. He says that when Matthew heard this, follow me, he got up and he left everything and he followed Jesus. Now, understand what that means Peter, James, John, Andrew, they, did the, they got up and left their fishing business. But it would be a lot easier to go back to fishing because you just throw a net in the water. I mean, it, that, that could have happened again. But he's, he's, turn, he's snubbing his nose against the Romans, and he's now trying to come into the Jews who already don't like him. He's turning his back on everything, his lucrative business, all of that. He left everything to follow Jesus. Now, from a lower story perspective, boy, that seems like a big sacrifice. Until you understand what this call meant. The fact that the Son of God, that Jesus, the Messiah, pu pu pulling and picking out those to follow him, chooses you and says, I want you to follow me. And in following him, that means that he has looked and he has said, I want, I want you to be and to, to know me and to learn about me. And ultimately, he's, in this whole following thing, he's showing them that their belief will lead to eternal life and following him will lead to truth. So when you look at all those things, but understand, he did say it's an all or nothing proposition. As we sang today, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. I have left it all. I, I'm a follower of his. That's what this call to Matthew is. I'm a follower. That, but let's think about this. All of Jesus' followers had some kind of issues. There was some, uh, none of those guys, there wasn't a perfect one in the bunch, in all 12. But Matthew, think about it. He came with some extra baggage. Remember the description I already gave to you? Now think about this. Historians tell us that Matthew, probably where he was in Capernaum, probably was one who taxed fishermen as they brought fish out of the Lake of Galilee. They, they required a tax everything they brought in. So with that in mind, can you imagine that first meeting when Jesus says, hey, Peter, James, Andrew, and John, look at the new disciple. It's Matthew. Awkward, right? I, I, can, I just know Peter, James, and John muttered something under their breath that they couldn't record in Scripture. That's all I'm saying, okay? 
this was not a happy moment, okay? They knew who he was, and now he's one of them. He's now going to be one of their followers. It's interesting, when you look at Mark and Luke's account of this passage whenever Matthew comes to follow Jesus, and Mark and Luke were not apostles. They weren't one of the 12. They were learning this either from, from seeing it or from hearing about it. But when they talk about this, they, were, they call Matthew by the name Levi at this point. Now, that was one of Matthew's names. A lot of people had dual names in the scriptures. It's possible that Matthew was even a name that Jesus gave him. That's a possibility. But many people believe the reason they did that is they were trying to, to save the reputation of the apostles, and so this is, this is the guy before, his name was Matthew, because when they record, or Levi, because when they record later as an apostles, they list him as Matthew, because he's one of the apostles. So it's like they were saying, this is the before guy, and his name's Levi. So when we read here in Matthew, what we're reading is an actual account from the guy who was there, who saw this happen, who knew who he was, and he's saying, this is me, guys, Matthew. In fact, when he lists himself in Matthew chapter 10, verse 3, as one of the apostles, here's how he describes himself. It was Matthew, the tax collector. He said, I'm Matthew, the publican. I'm Matthew, the sinner. I'm this. Do you understand what this picture is, guys? That when Jesus calls him and he follows Jesus, now we have an everyday living, walking picture of the mercy of Jesus. The fact that no matter where Matthew had come from, no matter what he had done, despised that he had been as a tax collector, he's now a follower of Jesus. He's been given mercy by the Son of God. He's been given a, a forgiveness of all that he has. What an amazing portrait of mercy and forgiveness. As, as you're looking down, you see Peter, James, John, Matthew, seriously? Picture of mercy right there. Paul kind of said the same thing later in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul had some issues. If you remember, and here's how he describes it, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, Look at the next phrase. I was shown what? Mercy. He goes on to say, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Anyone who's a follower of Christ, if you're today have received Christ, you're one of his followers, you have, you have received forgiveness, then you are in it, by definition a picture of mercy. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. It wasn't because you figured it out and you came, God came pursuing you and said, if you will receive my gift, I will forgive you. That's mercy. And you sit here today not because you deserve it. You're just a sinner saved by the grace and mercy of God. That's the picture of Matthew. That when you're a follower of Christ, that in itself means you're a picture of mercy. You are an example of what testimony of what mercy truly is. Here's the second thing I learned in this story about mercy. Mercy attracts those who know that they need it. They know they need it, and mercy attracts those who, who come to this point. At verse number 10, at some point in this story, however long it takes, Matthew throws a party at his house, a dinner party. Jesus is there, the disciples are there, and so are some of Matthew's colleagues from his tax collecting business. Other tax collectors and sinners would include just a, a sundry of, of the bad people in town. They're all part of this party. Now, let's think about that. Jesus at a party like this, 
First thing is it might be a little intimidating, right? Because, you know, they all know who Jesus is. He's the holy man. He's the one that does everything right. And we're definitely on the other end of that spectrum by our description and so is others. So it would be very uncomfortable and awkward, but it wasn't at all. Why? Because they had seen the mercy that he showed to Matthew, and they were attracted to that. They saw that when when mercy came to to Matthew, they wanted some of that. They knew that that was something they needed. Whether they want to admit it or not, they knew the life they were living. They needed some mercy shown to them. And so they gathered around, and and this, this is a party that they're enjoying. But isn't that a little bad for Jesus' reputation? I mean, the Pharisees think, think so. Look, look at verse number 11. The Pharisees say, why would he eat with these low-life people, basically? Why would he do this? They eat with these tax collectors. Jesus hears it, and basically here's Jesus' response. Why wouldn't I eat with them? Why, why wouldn't I spend time with these people? And then he gives this analogy. And it's so logical if you think about it. Listen to what Jesus said again. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Okay, so you get it, right? Let's, let's think about it. You, you, you decide, graduate from high school, you're going to be a doctor. So you go four years to college, go four more years to graduate medical school. Then you spend at least four to six years in some kind of a residency. And however long that takes, now you're a doctor. You open your office. You put a shingle outside. The doctor is in. And underneath it says, no sick people allowed. Healthy people only. What? then why are you a doctor? Do you see the point? That's what Jesus is making. Why would I, the doctor, in fact, the Bible calls him the great physician, why would I come into a place where where people are sick and then avoid them? I've come to help them. I've come to give them healing. Why would I, I not be there? Now, of course, Jesus is, we're not supposed to pick up the ailments of those we're around. You know, we're not supposed to, to become, we, we still have to live. Jesus still lived his life holy, but he was showing that as, as people of mercy, it's the idea of showing that, of reflecting that mercy. And when, they, when we do, people see that. Our lives, Christians, need to be of such that mercy is shown so people see it. It becomes contagious. Our church should be a place in which people who are sick, the, the church is meant to be a, a hospital, even an ER or triage, if you would, for those who are sick and hurting. But folks, if we start doing that, trust me, we're going to get some people in here who are sick and hurting. And we've got to not only be ready for it, we need, that's what we need to be excited about, that God brings us those who need him. But they'll come if they see that if they come to this place, they'll find mercy. Or they'll come to you if they need it because they'll see from you they'll receive mercy. Mercy attracts those who know that they need it when true, genuine mercy is given. They'll, they'll show up. Are, are we ready for that, church? Are you ready for that, Christian? Are you ready for the people who need mercy to come to you? All you got to do is show some mercy and they'll come. And that's what Jesus did. He showed mercy and boy, did they show up. Third thing I want you to grab is this. Following God will include growing in mercy. Okay, I mentioned before that what Jesus does, he says, we're going to learn. And he quotes from the Old Testament, Hosea chapter 6. He wants us to learn from it. So let me read you Hosea 6, the whole verse. Here's what Hosea 6, 6 says. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice. There's the quote. It goes on to say, and acknowledgement or knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. What, jo- what Hosea, God was saying through Hosea back in, in that day to those people was, you've got all the religious practices down. 
you're doing everything religiously correct. You've got all your, your I's dotted and your T's crossed religiously. You do everything right, all your sacrifices, that's all in place. But you forgot something very important, and that is to love the people that are around you, to show mercy, to care for them. He said, listen, I am a God of compassion. I care for people, and since I care for people, so should you because you're my people. As you grow in your relationship with God, it, it will also include growing in mercy. So religious leaders then, religious leaders now in Matthew's day, they were focused on doing and getting everything done correctly and rightly. But God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to know me, and as you know me, you're also going to grow in something that I love and that I desire mercy. So so would you if you're growing to know me. If we acknowledge and know God, mercy is going to begin to grow in our lives. Jesus, in another place, gives a, man, a scathing rebuke to a bunch of Pharisees. Listen to this, Matthew 23, 23. He said to them, you give a tenth of your spices, you tithe, your mint, the dill, the cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, which are justice and mercy and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. It's still not uncommon today for us to be so religious and do, do the checklist on Sunday and throughout that we, we come to church, we attend, we do that. And God says, if that is true and you're genuinely following me and growing to know me, then it should change things. But in this case, religion was more important than mercy. Religion was more important than, than loving God and loving others should be what, what characterizes us as followers of Christ. And as we grow, that's exactly what will happen. Rather than just doing it, you, you act like the one who you, you say that you're following. So the question is, is it religion for us or is it a relationship? We say it's a relationship. We need to know God. Well, here's it. If we're growing in that relationship, it's going to affect the way that you show mercy. Because remember, who is God? The Lord, the Lord Almighty, merciful, gracious, compassionate, abounding in mercy. If that's God and we're his followers and we're going to know him, then should not our lives then begin to reflect that very characteristic of God? Here's a couple of thoughts just to bring it home. God's people then and now should be a people of mercy. That's what should characterize us. We are God's people. We're his representatives. And if as his representatives he is merciful, we too should be people full of mercy. He is full of hope and forgiveness. So should we. That's, if, if we're growing in him, we, as his people, we should be people of mercy. So let me ask you a couple of questions. Just evaluate some things. Just think about this, all right? Are there some people, maybe certain types of people, certain groups of people in your life with whom you find it hard to show mercy? You don't like them. You don't like what they do. You don't like how they treat you or they don't... They're, they're anti-Christian, whatever the phrase, there's, a, there's groups of people, could involve prejudice, could involve whatever words you want to use. Are there a group of people with whom you find it hard to show mercy? Let me ask you this, question two. Is there someone that has hurt you that you're finding it hard to show them mercy? Oh, that's tough. I'm not saying it's ever going to be easy. But is there someone in your life who needs mercy? And you and God are having to talk with this because that's a tough one. Are you seeing what this is, Christians? As we go to know him, we also should be growing in our actions of mercy. One, one other question. How would you go about intentionally just reaching out to those in need of mercy? 
what, what could you do this week to intentionally show mercy to someone who, who just needs it in some way? Here's the thing. The Bible says some of you are gifted at that. There literally is, in Romans, the gift of mercy. There are some people, they just, they, they seem to do that naturally. They, they're, they're great at visiting people in the hospital or visiting those who are sick. and coming. They're just great at mercy acts, okay? That's good. But here's what God is telling us. It just because you're not gifted doesn't get us off the hook. As God's people, we should be, if God's a God of mercy, we should be a people of mercy. It should be something that's growing as, as our life in him grows. So maybe it's, a, it's maybe throwing a Matthew party. Throw a Matthew party in your neighborhood. Maybe with your friends, people you go to school with. Invite them over. Give them something to eat. That's a great place to start with anybody. Give them something to eat. And then make sure part of the process is you're wanting them to see Jesus, either in you or maybe the other people around you. That's what our life groups should be a part of. In fact, in, in the summer, we do what we call backyard barbecues for our life groups. That's the point. They're supposed to be Matthew parties. It's not just for a bunch of Christians to hang out and eat. We do a lot of that. That's not the issue. The issue is we do eat, but we invite someone who needs to see Jesus. And hopefully they're going to see a group of people that are merciful that they could see the mercy of God through them. Maybe that's what you do. Throw a Matthew party. Maybe it's being involved in our CLTB. We've, a couple times we've been, we just hand out coffee with our church's name on it. And this cup simply says, uh, because God loves you and so do we. Maybe it's something like that, where you're just handing out in a, a, a literal cup of, of help to someone, and, and maybe they don't need it, they got the money in their pocket, but you understand the principle, is just showing someone that you need, that, they, that you love them. Even the, the life group earlier that talked about giving backpacks in the middle of the year for kids who need it. We have, we have another life group that's putting together ways to, to help those with, with just uh, perishable items, toothpaste and all that. We have setting out in our lobby a compass uh, illustration of just helping others. What I'm saying is, what, could, what would God be saying in your life that could be just a way to extend mercy? Because we are, we are people of mercy, and we need to be showing that. In fact, l- let me show you a verse f- that God shows us to describe who we are. First Peter chapter 2, the first verse, verse 9, is the verse I've encouraged you this, this month to memorize. It's, it's the one that I hope that you're kind of putting in your head. But I want you to see that and then see the next one. Here's our memory verse. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. That's who we are. Why? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's who we are and that's what we're to do. But notice this next verse. Listen to this. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Catch this. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That describes us as Christians. We are mercy-filled people because God showed us mercy, which leads us to one last thought. If we've experienced God's mercy, we should demonstrate God's mercy. I personally believe that this is one of Jesus' main points in this whole story of Matthew. So I believe he was looking at these Pharisees, and and it almost seems like he's saying that the Pharisees were the healthy ones, the non-sick ones, and the, the tax collectors, they were the sick ones. And I probably, you probably would say that's what they thought too. Oh, yes, we understand. We're the healthy ones. I I think, but as you look closer at what he's trying to get us to learn, I think what he was trying to say is, listen to me, guys. The reason you're struggling with mercy is maybe you've never received mercy. 
Maybe you, you're having trouble giving mercy because you've never experienced what it's like to receive mercy. I think Jesus, I, I know for a fact that Jesus w- would agree with what Paul said, Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, that there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that are without sin. And, he was, and that would include these Pharisees. That would include all of us. He's talking to a group of self-righteous people, and he's saying the problem is you, you are too proud, you're too righteous to even admit the fact that you have a need, that you need mercy. And you're, you're too con- they convince themselves that because we're not as bad as those people, then we must be okay with God. And, God's, and, and Jesus' mercy to the, even these Pharisees, he's trying to show them, don't you get it, guys? You need a doctor too. The doctor's in the house, and you need him. You just haven't yet understood that and and cried out for help as these people have. There's one last story I want to tell, Jesus tells as we wrap this up. He tells a story about a Pharisee and a tax collector, two people that we've been talking about. But in this story, he makes a very powerful point, and I want you to hear this, all of us, we've got to grab this one. Here's Jesus' story, Luke 19. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other tax collector. Now the Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed, listen to this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Can you, the audacity of that self-righteousness? The tax collector's got to go, I I can hear you, you know, I mean, it's not, I, I can hear what you said, right? He said, I'm not like these people, right? I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of all I get, but... The tax collector, on the other hand, stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. He beat his breast, and he said, look what he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, that this man, the, the, the publican, the tax collector, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus makes it very clear, one guy went home okay with God, justified before God. One did not. And it's not the one who you would think. It wasn't the one that society would think. It wasn't the Pharisee. It was the one who humbled himself and said, God, I need your mercy. So this becomes the all-important question today. Will you go home from here today justified? before God. Maybe you would find yourself in the position of a publican, tax collector, down the road where most people think you're just not a good person. Or maybe most people don't even know it, but you know down deep you've got such, you've got such issues. Why would God ever forgive you? How are you ever going to, how is this ever going to change? How, this, you're just so wrapped up in bondage. It seems like hopeless. If that's you, remember a guy's name, Matthew. Remember the guy's name, Paul. Were they unforgivable? No, no. But they had to have God's mercy. And God wants you to know his mercy. God wants you to forgive you of your sins and you to leave here knowing that you're free and clean before him. But maybe you consider yourself a pretty good person. Now, you may not say things like the Pharisee said, at least not out loud. But deep down, you really don't see why there's such a big 
this such a big deal. I mean, you're a good person. You're a good neighbor. You, you do things that, that most people would consider. I mean, you may even be a regular church attender. You might even be a member of Calvary for years. But if you've never had a time when you cried out to God for mercy because you were a sinner who needed a Savior, all that stuff means nothing. You, too, need God's mercy. Or maybe today you are a follower of Christ, follower of God, and God's just kind of saying to you, I want you to be an instrument of my mercy. And maybe it's just a recommitment to God, you have been so merciful to me, I want to even intentionally look for ways that I can show mercy to others this week. Whether it's forgiveness or assistance, but in some way that I can be an instrument of your mercy. Let's bow our heads. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Very simply, the idea of mercy. At some point, we all need it, and maybe that's what you need today, just to experience his mercy. Maybe it's even possible as a child of God, you've kind of walked away from him, and, and you've, you've walked away from that, that walk that you had at one point, and today even God is saying, child, do you understand? I, I'm here. My mercy's new. If you confess your sins, I'm faithful and just to forgive. He wants you to walk out of here clean and, and ready to serve him again. Or maybe you're here and you know you've never taken that step to receive Jesus as your Savior. You've never repented of your sins and become one of his followers. And you need his mercy today. Today I just challenge, I encourage you, I, I, I implore you to leave here as a person, a recipient of God's mercy. And on the other hand, children of God, church of God, people of God, I challenge you, let's be a people of mercy this week. People will be attracted to God if they see his mercy flowing through us. I don't know what that means to you. You may have an, an idea right in your head right now, or you just be open and say, God, as you show me those acts of mercy, by your grace, I'm going to take them this week. Because I want to show your mercy to others like you showed it to me. Father, it's real. Mercy is such an important thing, and it's so amazing that you give us mercy despite everything we've done. But if there is a person here who's not experienced that mercy, may this be the day that they put away their pride and they put away their, their issues and they say, God, I understand. You're a merciful, gracious God, and you sent your son to die for me. Please forgive me of my sins. I want to follow you like Matthew did. Please call them today. And as people of God, Father, please give us the courage and the insight to be people of mercy.